Trishana, I would like to invite you, though, if you've got your Bibles, to open up to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. We are jumping back into our walk through the book of Philippians. And, and as we do so, since it's been a little bit, we've had some holiday interruptions. I just want to recap for you where we've come from. Uh, the, the letter of Philippians is written to the church in Philippi. Philippi is uh, a, a Roman colony over in Greece. It's the site of uh, the, the, the famed battle where Julius Caesar's assassins were eliminated and defeated. It was given this special right that even though it was not near the city of Rome, those citizens of Philippi would bear the rights and privileges and responsibilities of Roman citizens. And uh, a church is started there during one of Paul's missionary journeys, and Paul has a rich and warm relationship with this church. We've seen it in his language. He talks about his affection for them, his longing for them. And, and at the heart of this affection is the fact that the church in Philippi has not just welcomed Paul's ministry, but they're actually engaged in the ministry themselves. They're a church on mission. And so Paul, from his prison in Rome under house arrest, chained to a praetorian guard, he writes the church in Philippi. And in chapter 1, we watch him call them to be and, and, and spur them on to be nothing short of a gospel-driven church. He calls them to strive side by side, to contend for the faith, for the spread of the gospel, to do so as a unified body. Understanding that the suffering they face has been a gift of God's grace because they are walking in the shoes of their Savior, and, and He calls them in that to live out their citizenship, their heavenly citizenship, worthy of the gospel. And as He begins in chapter 2, driving that home, He says, what I want, what that's going to look like is you are driven by the mission of God. You are a gospel-driven church who walks in unity through humility. And He gives that powerful example of Christ's humility, and, and He's the last time we were here, we saw that all that translates into his call that if we're going to live out our citizenship worthy of the gospel, then we are to take the salvation of God seriously in our lives, to with fear and trembling live out, work out what God is actively working within. And we, we saw that, that both that, that, that word of conviction, but also word of encouragement that if you and I are in Christ, the salvation we've been given. Not only are we called to, to live it out no matter the cost, no matter how hard, but God Himself is the one within us working, enabling you and I to be a gospel-driven people who carry out the mission of God and conduct ourselves in unity through humility, who, who work out our salvation. And now Paul's going to flow from that thought, and he's going to start to get specific and if we're honest, where he starts to apply specifically is maybe not where we would think if we were the ones writing the letter. So look with me, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That is, do everything, anything that pertains to working out your salvation with fear and trembling, do all of it without any hint of grumbling or disputing. Grumbling or disputing, grumbling, which is behind-the-scenes talk. It's complaints uttered amongst ourselves in low in, and hushed tones. It's the kind of discussion that 
speaks against unity, but promotes ill will. It's not the loud, outspoken dissatisfaction, as one theologian put it, but it's the, the undertone of murmuring which, some, which sometimes one hears in the lobbies of our churches, where certain cliques have it out with others speaking behind. It's those who confer secretly, who discontentedly complain. And if grumbling is more quiet, then he says, with no grumbling and no disputing, no arguing. And it's the idea of, of an intellectual questioning. It's, it starts inwardly with an intentional, thought-out questioning that manifests itself outwardly through arguments, heated discussions, skeptical questionings, criticisms. So Paul tells the church in Philippi here, he says, everything that it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, as you live out your citizenship worthy of the gospel, as you are driven by the gospel on mission, as you seek to walk in unity through humility, you do it all with not a hint of the quiet murmuring of personal complaint or the intentional, thought-out, deliberate, heated debate or criticisms without any grumbling or disputing. And he specifically uses language here that, that's interesting because he's writing a congregation that is not Jewish in their background. In fact, of all the congregations that we, we know of that Paul plants, Philippians may be the most heavily Gentile. Yet he lose, uses language that immediately pulls us back to the Old Testament to describe Israel and their relationship with God in the Exodus. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but let me just give you a recap. The language here of grumbling and disputing is the same language used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, to describe Israel, the people of Israel, and how they related with God, with their leadership, and with each other throughout the Exodus. We see in Exodus chapter 2, the people of Israel cry out to God for deliverance. We see in Exodus 3, God calls Moses and said, Moses, I've heard their cries, I've seen their suffering, and I am sending you, I'm going to use you to deliver them. Why? Because I am God, because I am faithful, I'm faithful to the covenant, and, I, and it's going to happen, we're going to bring them out, I'm sovereign, I'm almighty. So Moses goes and he says, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, we're going to make him work even harder. And so what do the people of Israel do in Exodus 5? They complain against Moses because their labor was increased. Then after the plagues, Pharaoh finally releases them. They come out. Moses is following the leadership of God, the pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. God is taking them out. They end up over there by the Red Sea. The people look up and see the Egyptian armies coming. And what do they say? It says they grumbled against Moses. Why have you brought us here only to die? It would have been better for us to die back in slavery. God delivers them. He parts the sea. They get to the other side, and after having witnessed this incredible miracle where God takes a body of water and parts it in half, and they walk across not damp ground, but dry ground, they get to the other side, and they go, there's no drinkable water, and they begin grumbling and complaining, and God Provides water, Exodus 15. Exodus 16, they grumble about the lack of food, and so God provides manna from heaven. In Numbers 11, it describes the people. The people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. The sons of Israel, uh, or, 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 the sons of Israel wept, and they said, Who will give us meat to eat? 
Remember the fish that we used to eat in Egypt freely, the cucumber and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now we have no appetite. There is nothing at all to look at but this manna. God, we don't have any food. God says, I'm going to provide you supernatural food from heaven, manna. And what do the people do? Don't you remember, everybody? We're just tears in our eyes. Don't you remember when we were under bondage and slavery and life was terrible in Egypt, but we could eat fish and melon and all we have is this sorry provision of God. Numbers 14, Israel sends the spies into the promised land. The spies come back, they give their report. They say, look, the promised land is everything God said it is, but the people who inhabit the promised land they're mighty. They're great. And out of those 12 spies, 10 of them, through grumbling, spread in those quiet murmurs, those complaints throughout the rest of the camp of Israel, which leads to open dispute before Moses where they come and they say, you are crazy. We will not go into that land. Would we have died in the land of Egypt? Would we have or, or died even in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So let's appoint a leader who will take us back to Egypt. And only two of those spies stand up and say, whoa, Israel, what? No, God has promised. Don't be afraid of anything. You see, God said he's going to give us the land. And the result of that grumbling is God said, for 40 days you went and spied the land, and for one year for each of those days, all of you outside of Caleb and Joshua's families, Anybody over the age of 20, you will stay in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire generation who grumbles and complains dies out. See, this is the Old Testament background. We find these words go to, they reflect the people of Israel who constantly complain at any hardship, at any change, at any inconvenience. We find them failing to trust the Lord's character at every turn. They, they fail to submit to his path and to his ways. They take out their arguments on their leadership. They conspired in hushed tones to stir up discussions, to debate their arguments. And with this background there, Paul writes and tells the Philippians, do all things without a hint of any of this. Well, who are the Philippians grumbling and complaining against? What, what is it, just a generic thing, or, or is there a reason Paul's bringing it up? Well, we've seen from the example of Israel, it's possible to complain and grumble against the Lord himself. God, why have you brought us here? God, why are you allowing this? God, are you, are you really who you say you are? This is, this is not really what we expected. And it's possible. Maybe they groaned against the Lord, though for them personally, it, it doesn't seem as likely based on the text. It could be that they're grumbling against the leaders that have been appointed over them. It does mention at the beginning, it's the only letter of Paul's where he writes not just the congregation, but also mentions the elders and the deacons, that is, the pastors and the deacons. Perhaps they were grumbling and complaining when their pastors stood up and called them to a hard obedience and said, if you go offer that incense in worship to the emperor, yes, you're just tossing some incense on a thing, but you are confessing that the emperor is Lord, and you can't do that. But if I don't do it, pastor, I'm going to get flagged by the authorities. If I don't do it, pastor, I'm not going to be a faithful Roman, a member of the greatest country the world's ever seen. 
Maybe it's when the pastors called out the liberality of their sexuality and who knows what it is that they were maybe grumbling and complaining against their pastoral leadership. Maybe it's because the pastors decided not to invite the Gathorian vocal band for a concert and instead invited Toby Maximus. I don't know. could be that they're complaining against their leaders. It's possible. We know from in the text it could be that they're complaining against each other. We know from chapter 4 there's at least several ladies in this local church that have gotten into a spat with each other. There's a grumbling and complaining against each other. Perhaps it was those who preferred to meet in the mornings rather than the evenings. Perhaps those who wanted this style rather than that style. The point of the matter is there was a even in a church as on mission and healthy as the church in Philippi, there was a danger and temptation to all of it if grumbling and complaining was in their midst. And notice it says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. It could just be that there was some kind of a spirit that just any little thing that went wrong there was that murmuring, that grumbling, that disputing. And with the backdrop of the Old Testament, here's what Paul wants them to understand. Any form of grumbling and complaining ultimately is a form of grumbling and complaining against the Lord. Whether we do it directly to the Lord, whether we aim it at our spiritual leaders, whether we aim it at each other, whether we aim it at just circumstances in life, all grumbling and complaining ultimately comes back to a shot against our king. And church family, here's the question we've got to pause and ask as we see this here. Where do we grumble and complain? You see, we can grumble and complain against the Lord. We can grumble and complain against the Lord when obedience actually demands real sacrifice in our lives. We can grumble and complain against the Lord when obedience actually welcomes hardship, when things get rough, when all of a sudden we stand out, when there is opposition, or when God asks something of us, that means we have to give something up. We can grumble and complain in the, against the Lord when we just want to harbor and hold on to that bitterness against that person who wronged us and refuse and ignore the Lord's command to forgive and allow vengeance to play out in the Lord's hands. I did this in my own life, church family. There was a very pivotal moment in my life spiritually. As a high school student, there was very much in my life an idolatry of sports. Grew up in a very athletic culture there in College Station, and, and there was an idolatry. My whole identity was tied to how I performed in a, any given sport. You might not know I played a baseball game the night before, but if I played terribly, I'd bring it up and talk about and try to justify it because my life was bowed down to the idol of performance through athletics. And the Lord had been convicting me in my spirit moment and moment and moment, and I had refused to repent of it, and it finally got to this point. For one day, I was spending time with the Lord, and I heard as I was processing through what I was reading that day, I heard the Spirit just whisper to my heart, Wes, do you love me? Lord, of course I love you. I'm seeking you daily. I'm praying. I'm involved in ministry. I'm engaged in stuff at church. Of course I love you. Wes, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Wes, do you love me? 
And that's when I realized, Lord, I, I love you in many ways, but I worship the idol of sports in my heart. And the Lord said, yes, you do. And so here's what I'm calling you to. You are going to give it all up next year. If you play any organized sport activity through school, you can, you can read your Bible every day. You can pray every day. You can raise your hands high and close your eyes and worship. You can serve on every ministry team at church, but understand it will not be because you love me because this is my next step for you. And so for whatever reason, I honored that. When it went into the next year, was not playing any sports. And I will never forget this moment. If you'd ask me, why aren't you playing sports? Well, I'd tell you all about this moment of the Lord working in my life, and I've surrendered to it. But I kept making little side jokes. Say something to my parents. Oh, man, all the guys are out there in two-a-days playing football. If I could, you know. And I kept making these little complaining statements. And the Lord finally got a hold of me through one of them one day, and he said, Wes, it's great you've chosen to, to, to be obedient and take the step. But if you're going to tell everybody that the reason you've stepped out is because of my work in your life, but you're going to sit here every day and complain, then you're really not yielded. We can complain against the Lord, church family. When God leads us to take a step, maybe we even take that step, but we continually and perpetually make comments about how hard it is. We can grumble and complain directly against the Lord, not just in those moments, but but in the moments when we deliberately choose to question his character. Now, I'm not talking about when a tragedy of life occurs and all of a sudden questions raise up in our hearts and we're trying. I'm not talking about legitimate questions and hardship. What I mean is we know what the truth says. We know who our God is, but we find time and time again, we make an active intentional choice to come up with reasons to question who he is and the way he works. We can grumble directly against the Lord. We can grumble against spiritual leadership in our lives. How many times in my time in vocational ministry have we, as pastors, sat down and, and prayed through a decision and sought wisdom, and, and there's been an opportunity that, that is, as we've, we've said no to it, only to hear of those in the church murmur and complain, I can't believe they would ever do that. They don't really know what they're doing. Da, da, da. Wait a minute. We didn't come out and say we're no longer preaching the Bible. We said that this opportunity we just can't do as a church because we sense this over here. The pastor starts preaching the hard truth when decisions are made that some don't like, when all of a sudden a service time has changed or... All of a sudden, a musical number is altered or a programming. We once did this ministry, now we're doing this ministry. Or, or maybe we're prioritizing new ministries and budget and time, church, family, whether it is style or dress or whether it's Sunday school versus small groups, whether it's, is it Harvest Festival or do we mention Halloween? Is it Vacation Bible School versus Sports Camp? Understand everything I just named, not a one of them are addressed as moral issues in Scripture. But we sure do like to grumble and complain against spiritual leadership when they step on our preferences in them. I, I heard of a church recently from a pastor friend. He said, yeah, that church, it's a sweet church, kind people. He said, at that church, as long as pastor preaches a good sermon and dedicates their babies 
and shows up in the community and doesn't change anything, they don't care how often the baptism waters are stirred. But you dare go and try to change something. You dare go and try, all of a sudden there will be grumbling and complaining. Church family, how grievous that that would be the report of a church, a sister church. Now understand, in no way am I advocating that pastors and church leadership are above failure. I'm going to be really clear. I don't drink any different kind of water than you drink, and I don't have any different Holy Spirit in me than you have the Holy Spirit if you're in Christ. I am not above slipping. Our pastors are not above slipping. Leadership is not above failure. But understand, there is a difference between leadership failing in sin and between things that are not one way or the other biblically that's just a style preference that we choose to create as if it's sin. There's a difference between a leader failing biblically and a leader following the Lord. Imagine Moses. Listen, there's a quicker way out of Egypt than to go to the Red Sea. How many of the, the, the Israelites could have said, hey, Moses, I got my map out here. It sure looks like, I mean, the fastest route on Google Maps here is showing we cut up this way and take the, the Grand Tollway out of the top northeast. What are we doing down here by the Red Sea? You know what you're doing down there by the Red Sea? You're following God's presence. The cloud of fire by day, the, cl the, 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 cloud of, or the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. What is Moses doing? Moses is doing exactly what God charged him to do. What is God doing? He's taking his people to a place that is absolutely impossible for them in their own effort to come through so that the people of Israel will know that he is their God and deliverer and not themselves in their own maps. We've got to be clear. It's easy to grumble against the leadership that God's placed over us. And if leadership fails biblically, there is a place to talk about it. There's a place amongst ourselves to, to talk and, and share concerns and how do we handle this, how do we approach this, but there's a difference between discussing concerns and grumbling. One is for truth and righteousness, the other is for pre personal preference and desire. One is over biblical truth, one is over personal opinion. One is out of a desire for the holiness and glory of God and wants unity and humility. The other is out of a desire to tear down and have it all my way. See, Scripture does give word. Paul tells Timothy, he says, if, he says, no accusation should be accepted against a pastor in the church except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And then he goes on from there to describe it. Here's the reality, church. I am not telling you today that you must blindly follow whatever any pastor ever tells you. If a pastor's in sin, if a pastor tells you something that's not according to Scripture, you have every right. If I get up next week and say, church family, for the next five weeks, we're going to walk through a series on the Koran. You better all get up in mass and slap me. <laughs> like, leave. I mean, something. It's, like, there's a problem there. There is a place to deal with and handle conflict and failure in leadership. But we want to be clear what that is versus grumbling and complaining. We can grumble and complain against God, grumble and complain against leadership. We can grumble and complain against each other. Church family, just look up social media and pick a hot topic. Amen. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We do there what we would do quietly behind the scenes with each other in person before that was there. Well, I can't believe, I can't believe that family, they're, they're just not godly. They're just not godly because they dare let their kids go to public school. How dare they? 
and I'm going to get all the homeschool and private school people, and we're going to push them out to the side. Wait a minute, what? There's not a word in Scripture about whether, what school you should send. There's principles in Scripture to help you determine where God would have you send your child to school. But it's not like there's a verse that says, thus says the Lord, you must only send your child to said mode of school. I watched this all over the place in the Southern Baptist Convention today. Are there real issues? Yes. But is there real discussion and real confrontation over the real issues? Very rarely. Instead, what it is, is it is grumbling and complaining. It is bashing each other. I can't believe this person said this. I can't believe this person said this. We're going to pull out of the convention, and we're going to tell you why, but we're only going to give you generalities and not ever actually tell you a real reason. See, we can grumble and complain against each other all over the place. We can grumble and complain against anything. Because in all things we're called to do, in all ways we're called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, in all those ways we're to do without grumbling and complaining. We can grumble and complain when we're putting together a piece of Ikea furniture. <laughs> we can grumble and complain when the, when, the, when the app says our mail was delivered and the package isn't in the mail. We can grumble and complain when we get and see all the little nicks and acts and the things that drive us crazy. Like having a hurried morning and getting in the car to discover you've only got four miles till empty and you pull into the gas station and discover you left your wallet at home and you've got to turn back and cancel your staff meeting. I was guilty of that this week. <laughs> we can grumble and complain about anything and when we do, it leads to an attitude of woe is me and fails to see the hand and glory and character of God in and through every aspect of our lives. I mean, understand what this says. In all things without grumbling or disputing, realize what that means. That means for the church in Philippi, if they're to work out their salvation in fear and trembling, then that part of the word which says church in Philippi, pray for your political leaders, pray for Emperor Nero. And you better pray for Emperor Nero without any grumbling or complaining. That means church family, I don't know that we've ever had a president as bad as Emperor Nero. We better pray for our president, our governors, our Congress people. We better do it without grumbling and complaining. It means when God calls us to tithe, we better tithe without grumbling or complaining. It means when God calls us to parent graciously and for his glory. It means, church family, if you have children, you and I better see them as gifts and blessings of God and not as little rugrats who impinge upon our and our spouse's freedoms. It means when God calls you husbands to live with your wives in an understanding way. It means when God calls you wives to, to submit to the leadership of your husband. It means when we live out by godly marriage, we better do it without grumbling and disputing. And grumble and dispute about all things. We do it because we get impatient because we honestly doubt the character of the Lord. We do it because sometimes we're ignorant. We don't know what the Lord's word actually says. We do it because we're lazy and it's easier to fall to a spirit of grumbling and complaining than it is to actually, in the power of the Spirit, say no to that and walk in the right way. We ultimately do it because we walk in pride and not the humility of Christ. Because I'm pretty sure in Jesus, as he stepped down in humility from the throne of heaven, as he took on flesh, as he was born of a virgin, as he lived the life you and I could not live in a world every bit as broken as what we see today, as he became our sin and bore the wrath of God on the cross, 
Never once did he grumble or dispute. So what are we to do, church family? How should we respond if we're to do all things, all things being working out our salvation with fear and trembling, when that means, when that means writing that tithe check, when that means praying for that leader, when that means loving my wife as Christ loves the church, when that means forgiving that person in terms of no longer holding the wrong over them, but entrusting their correction to the Lord, when that means giving up that thing in which I have placed my identity because the Lord has said, no more is this idol allowed in your heart. What are we to do? Let me just give you what the flip side of not grumbling or complaining is. It means we walk in firmly resolved faith. See, the problem with Israel, they grumbled and complained because somewhere they didn't really believe God is who he says he is and does what he said he does. And if we're going to not grumble or complain, we must walk in a resolved faith that really believes he is who he says he is. He is God. He is sovereign. He is personal. He is loving. That he is faithful and true. That he is with us. That he sees us as precious. That he is at work in and through us. That he is holy and he is king. Are really sure? And if, if we walk in re resolved faith, then it means we're going to respond in submission to his plan and to his ways. It means sometimes following God does take you into the wilderness where you don't have the melon and the cucumber and the fish. All you have is his manna. But the whole purpose of the manna in the wilderness was to train the people of Israel to love the Lord their God exclusively, to rely and depend on him alone, so that when he brought them into the promised land, they would not bow to the idols of their pagan neighbors, but they would shine as lights to the world for the glory of their God. Amen. So we respond in submission. We respond by rejoicing with great joy. Rather than grumbling or complaining, we respond by rejoicing. We rejoice, if nothing else, even in the midst of giving up. In the giving up of that which my identity has been wrapped into, there is a rejoicing because I can say, God, you're not done, and you were, even in my rebellion as your own son, even in my bowing down and finding identity and idolatry and something else, you were still faithful to love me and call me and pull me out of it. That is worth rejoicing. It means we rightly relate to each other. Rather than grumbling or complaining against each other, we honor each other. Romans 12, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. It means we honor the leadership God's placed over us in the church. Obey your leaders and submit to them. They keep watch over your souls and will give account. Let them do this with joy and not grief. It means we honor the Lord, honor our people, love the brotherhood, fear God, First Peter says. James says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. We walk rightly with each other by honoring each other rightly. We walk rightly with each other by loving. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It's not unbecoming in its action. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If we are committed to walking in that kind of love, church family, then it will be very, very difficult for us to grumble and complain against each other. 
means we walk in humility, as we've seen in Christ. It means if our first thought is, what do I like about it? How do I feel about it? If our first thoughts are to turn everything and make it about us, we need to go back and take a good look at Christ. It means where there are issues of sin, rather than grumbling and complaining about it, we follow what Scripture tells us in Matthew 18, and we confront them biblically and in the right way. We don't shy back from that. We don't just excuse it. But we do it in the right way. It also means when we find ourselves surrounded by conversations filled with grumbling and disputing, we flee. This is what we're to do if we are to not grumble and complain. But now I've spent the majority of the sermon unpacking one verse. Why? Well, look back with me at the text. Do all things, and everything you work your, salva your salvation out with fear and trembling, do all things, whatever it demands, without grumbling or disputing towards God, towards one another, towards leadership, towards anything, so that you will prove yourselves, you will be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, that is, without fault, is what blameless means. Innocent means unmixed. It means pure, sincere, with above reproach, meaning without blemish, with, without something that is imperfection, so that you would show yourselves to be children of God, so that you would reflect the character of your Father because you are no longer of this world. You have been bought with a price, and you are children of the Most High so that you would actually outwardly live out what Jesus has done to you, so that you would look like who you really are, so that you would reflect the glory and the greatness of God, of whom you are His children. And that this would be the case, look back with me, so that you would be blameless, innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, in the midst of a generation and time when, when things are twisted and, and morally wrong, where darkness reigns. That's what those words mean. So that in the midst of, not away from, not hid away in a monastery in the mountains, uh, away from as far as you can get the darkness of the world. No, in the midst. As God has called you and I to live out in the midst, we cannot escape the brokenness of the world this side of heaven. But God has called us in the midst of a morally twisted, bankrupt, broken, dark generation and place and time and world to actually look like who he's made us to be. And here's the result of that. Look with me. So in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you are being shined as lights. You see, Paul's concern, the reason grumbling and complaining is taken so seriously, church family, is because when you and I, as children of God, as followers of Christ, when you and I choose to walk in an attitude of doubt, an attitude of pride, an attitude of, of ignorance, an attitude of laziness, when we choose to walk in those ways and move towards grumbling and complaining against God, against leadership, against each other, against things in life, we begin to outwardly lose the distinctiveness that sets us apart from this world. 
Now, I say outwardly, if you and I are in Christ, we can grumble and complain all day long, and it does not take away the fact that Christ has bought us in His blood. But if He's bought us in His blood, then those things are to be, be shown forth outwardly. And I love it. I, I don't know if you caught it, but I, I read it as I translated it, which is, as whom you are being shined. It's a passive verb, meaning you and I aren't the ones who shine the glory of God. We're the ones through whom God shines His glory. And he shines his glory as lights to the world. And, and what do lights to the world do? Light and darkness exposes. You and I, as lights and darkness, we expose the death of sin. We expose the brokenness of sin, the perversion of sin. We expose it to the beauty and the order and the grandeur of the glory of God. Lights expose, but lights also do something else. The language there for lights is actually stars. And stars in their day and time would shine in the sky. And because they didn't have their iPhone with their preferred maps app, where did they look to to navigate? To the stars. You see, as God shines his glory through us, church family, we are the ones through whom God uses to help those in a lost, dying, perverse, broken, twisted world navigate their way to respond to his offer of salvation. Amen. And we do all of this, it says, holding fast to the word of life. And there's a, there's a, double, there's a double connotation there. Holding fast means not giving up anything, holding tight, being securely in the face of a world that's trying to twist the truth of Scripture. We do not let up one ounce of what the Word of God says. Thus saith the Lord is the end of all controversy. We hold fast to the Word of life. But that word also means to hold forth. As we hold fast to the word of life, as we shine or are being shined through to the glory of God, as we, we show ourselves to be children of God by not grumbling or complaining, we are doing it, holding forth to a lost and dying world, the word of life, holding it out, saying lost and dying world, per perverse world, looking for satisfaction, for hope, looking for identity, looking for salvation, looking for anything you can to escape the reality of your impending death. Here is the word of life. Not just of life, but of eternal life, of life abundant. We are holding fast to it because we are called to hold it forth to you. See, understand, church family, if we be a church family who grumbles and complains, we will never be a church family who is driven by the gospel. Because a gospel-driven church holds fast to the word of life and unapologetically holds forth the word of life. Paul's ultimate concern here, he makes an abrupt transition, and we're going to come back to it next week, but he says, so that in the day of Christ I will not have reason, or I will have reason to glory because I did not run or toil in vain Earlier, we already saw, he said, blameless, innocent, children of God above approach. Here's the real reality, church family. There is coming a moment for you and I, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You and I will not stand before the great white throne judgment, but you and I as Christians will stand before Christ, and we will give an account for our lives. And everything that, that is done in and with our life will be set on an altar. There will be gold, silver, and precious jewels. There will also be wood, hay, and straw, and, and the... And the 
The fire of Christ will consume that offering, and whatever we have built in wood, hay, and straw will be consumed to our loss. You see, there is an evaluation of you and I's lives that is coming. Paul's desire, the Lord's purpose, is that we stand in that evaluation blameless, without blemish, unmixed, that in that evaluation there is a source of pride and joy because the Lord has been honored in and through our lives. Not pride and joy in ourselves, but pride and joy that God proved himself to be exactly who he said he would be. But if we fall into grumbling and complaining, it means we do not see him rightly. What a sad reality to finally see Jesus on that day and to realize he looks exactly like he said he'd look, but he just doesn't look like I chose to believe he looked because I chose in pride and laziness and arrogance to question and doubt who he is, his shepherds, his people, the life he's called us to, rather than putting away all grumbling and complaining in all things. so that I might be a rightly reflecting child of God being shined through to a lost and perverse world, holding fast to his word of life, holding forth out his word of life, not having run my life in vain. Church family, the question is before us today, how will we respond? Jesus, I'm so very grateful that whenever an eternity passed, the Father looked at you and said, here's the plan of redemption. Your response was yes. It wasn't grumbling. It wasn't complaining. You didn't go murmur with the Holy Spirit. I can't believe the Father wants to do this. I can't believe I've got to be the one. Why did I draw? Jesus, you didn't do any of that. It says, for the joy set before you. And so, Father, may we be a church family who puts away all grumbling and disputing. A church family that is marked by humility, by unity, by being driven by your gospel, Lord. A church family who really believes you are who you say you are, who really submits to the path you lead us on, who rejoices because it's you who lead us on that path, who honors you, who honors each other, who honors the leadership you've placed. Lord, and by no means in any way may we misunderstand not grumbling or complaining. Lord, we do not want to go light on what is wrong, on what is sinful. Lord, we want to honor you in how we deal with sin and falsehood and things that need to be addressed in confrontation. Lord, we all need to be held accountable, myself included. But Father, may we be a people who does not grumble and complain. May we not be the people who spy out the promised land and go, well, nope, there's no way we're going there. Take us back to captivity. So Jesus, you and you alone know every one of our hearts in this room. However we need to respond, may we respond to you. It's in your name we pray.